Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of Anthology of Horror. I appreciate you guys being patient while I took my vacation time. I know it's been a while since I posted anything, and I genuinely appreciate each and every one of you repeat listeners. Thank you for coming back and continuing to make this a growing podcast. And to all new listeners, thank you also for the same, and welcome. Uh, I've been asked by several fucking people to share that this podcast is not safe for work. So, uh, in the event that you wanted to play me and all of my fucking charm for your boss, don't, unless your boss is weird. Um, if your boss is weird, good for you. But also try to avoid playing any of my episodes in around children. If it is safe for children, I will tell you. I have yet to do one, just because it doesn't say explicit on iTunes does not mean that I don't use excessive profanity in it, so please tread lightly. <sighs> no more further ado. Today, I'm going to be doing another anthology of stories, just to get back in the swing of things. I recorded that intro four times so far. I've recorded the body of this podcast twice as of now, and uh, I can't seem to find my groove, so hopefully this is the winner, and if you're listening to it, it fucking is. And now, without any further ado, it is my intention to provide you an ad-free listening experience because I give a fuck about your time, and I value it. And I appreciate you for listening, so that's my way of giving back right now. Uh, I have a Patreon. Don't know how to access it, I'll tell you at the end of the show. And I have an email, which I don't remember what it was because I've been gone for a while. <laughs> so, breaking my vacation lull of relaxing, we are right back at it, just in time for the end of summer reading from the book that I found when I was a child, titled Strangely Enough by C.B. Colby, A Hundred Hair-Raising Tales to Fascinate and Intrigue You, Fact or Fiction, Real or Imagined, and this is Scary Stories Shorter Than My Penis. I have read a little bit from this book before. Um, I read The Lady on the Highway. I read... Maybe I read... Daniel Abbott, The Phantom Ship. I think that was about it. I think it was like the tail end of another episode. I don't, I don't remember reading too many of them. So I'm going to start with falling objects. There have been a great many accounts of mysterious objects falling from the heavens. Some have eventually been explained, but others never have been. In my hometown, for example, many years ago, there was a sudden rash of falling snowballs from the sky one Sunday morning. But everyone was in church when it happened. A few folks were almost beamed by these freshly packed projectiles from the sky, and my own father had the distinction of solving the short-lived mystery. He was the one to catch me in the church belfry. Ha. However, on the other side of the country in California, there have been cases of such falling objects which were even more mysterious and with which I had nothing to do with. At one time, heavy walnuts, small stones, and even small bones were hurled upon a house in Fresno. Even some of the investigating police officers were struck, but no thrower was ever found, and the mystery remained unsolved. Small figures, nails, and bits of broken tile fell into a small printing plant in Los Angeles near City Hall. It was reported in a newspaper on July 2nd, 1939. One of the most intriguing and unusual incidents occurred in a section of the beautiful little town, Chico, California, in 1922, and that was when objects which fell in one particular area, consisted of oval rocks of various sizes and various marijuana plants. Some were tiny things weighing less than an ounce, less than an ounce, an ounce, <coughs> okay, 
while others were real dangerous, weighing nearly one pound. That's 16 ounces, I think. These rocks always fell straight down as though from a great height. And on one day, March 16th, they were warm to the touch. The next day, a heavy fall of rain rained them upon a crowd, or a heavy fall of them rained down upon a crowd of curiosity seekers and it injured one of them. Police checked the entire area and this target spot for clues to where the objects came from, but they found nothing. No person who may have had something to do with it or anything else that could account for them. No volcanoes, no strange magnetic anomalies, no Bermuda Triangle. A professor from one of the local colleges joined the investigation and later reported that some of the rocks were of such a size that they could not have been thrown into the area by ordinary means. The Chico police marshal, who had seen and heard the stones himself firsthand, spent two months trying to solve the fucking mystery, but to no avail. He finally gave up the investigation, yet the stones continued to fall for several more months. Finally, right around the time that everyone would have died in a war, or anyone that would be of the right size and age to pull off a joke of hauling rocks and throwing them at people from a great height, uh, stopped right around the time that the war started. And no one since then has been able to identify when or where they happened or what they were. So I'm going to say it was probably a strapping young man carrying rocks up to the belfry and throwing them at people. This one's called The Recovered Painting. All sorts of lost objects turn up many years later in weird-ass places. Oh, you, you guys remember this one. I definitely read this. Maybe not. Oh, man. George Ines, an American landscape painter during the 19th century, showed great talent at a young age. Long before he attained fame and fortune, though, he was commissioned by a railroad to paint a picture of its new round, round house. But his painting which was to be used in advertisements, the poor but compromising young artist earned the sum of 75 whole dollars. Many copies of the famous ad appeared, and the Lackawanna Valley became a well-known picture. The original painting, however, was disappeared, and it was uh, believed lost or destroyed or just lost to history and time, and who knows. Many years later, when Inez was traveling around the world, he happened to stop into a second-hand store in Mexico City. There before his eyes was his painting, the Lackawanna Valley. How the fuck did he get there? Nobody knew. The artist bought it, and it now hangs in the National Gallery of Art in Washington. How about that? This one is called the Battle of the Cheese. The sidewheeler, Araqui, built in the closing weeks of the Civil War, was immediately outmodded by the new Ironsides and never did get into service. She was assigned a captain and a crew fitted with a couple of small deck-mounted cannons and given the designation of a gunboat. At the time, the Chilean government was a bit shaky. To boost morale, the Iraqi was sent around the horn to Aconcagua to cruise up and down with her American flag flying and her two small cannons visible. His chore lasted for more than a year, and the captain and crew were anxious to return home. Fortunately, or so the captain thought, the Iraqi needed some repairs, so he asked for permission to return to the United States for the work to be done. The letter of permission came, but it arrived minutes too late. The mail launch had puffed out where the Iraqi was anchored, and the captain was reading with high elation that his request to return to the United States had been granted when he noticed that his cabin light was beginning to swing wildly. He rushed up to the deck and then he saw with astonishment that the waters of the harbor were running out to sea. In a matter of minutes, the gunboat would be high and dry, and somewhere there would be a great underwater earthquake. And then shortly after that, a tidal wave is going to rush back in to claim the harbor again. He barked orders to turn the ship, but before he could... Uh, uh, but before it could be swung around, she was grounded stern to sea. 
Bummer. Almost moments later, the horrified crew saw a huge tidal wave bearing down upon them from the, from the open sea. The giant wave crashed on them, sweeping away three men who were never found, and the Iraqwee was swept inland, along with the wreckage of many other ships caught in the catastrophe. But luckily, the Iraqwee's flat bottom and its shallow draft enabled it to stay upright until it crashed into the base of a high cliff two-mile island. You can't win them all. The next morning, the crew found the area buried under tons of wrecked ships and scattered uh, caragors, and like rats running through a dump, hundreds of looting natives were stealing all they could get their hands on. Eventually, these looters turned up to the Iraqi, and the exhausted sailors had to fight them off in hand-to-hand -hand combat. Finally, when the looters retired for another attack, the captain ordered the two small cannons be loaded to repel the mob. But while there was enough powder, the heavy shot was lost in some of the wrecked hold and could not be reached. So thinking fast, in desperation, the captain ordered all small round cheeses be brought up from the galley and directed them, loaded in the cannon. Now they were ready. When the looters charged them, the two cannons roared, and down went the attackers in a barrage of cheese. They did not make another attempt. Wow. The Iraqi never floated again and was broken up where she lay, and yet she had fought and won the Battle of the Cheese, and is listed in the annals as Lost in Action. It's a fitting tribute for the last gallant gunboat of its time. I believe I also read the side of the road lady, Lavender. She folded up your jacket, left it on her grave. Oh, man. Okay, this one's called the Sporting Seagull. A doctor friend. <laughs> yeah, I have a friend that's a doctor, totally. A doctor friend of one of my... Oh, sorry. doctor friend of one of my readers is a man who likes to play golf. He was once vacationing in Maine and had a chance to play in a foursome. A foursome? like a quad so he's about to have a foursome at South Bristol uh, golf course with some of his buds it was a warm day and the golfers were refreshed by the cool ocean breeze when they reached the glory hole or the second hole the doctor got off a good first stroke <laughs> Are you, what the fuck and then a corker of a second stroke wow two strokes for the price of one he dropped his balls close enough for the pin and for probably a birdie for a probable birdie? This is fucking Greek to me. Not really. It looked like a lucky day for him. Well, fuck, man, I'll say. Two strokes and he dropped his balls on something already? He was a pretty happy golfer as he strode confidently towards the green where he had just dropped his balls. Just as he arrived at the green, a seagull swooped down, scooped up his balls, and started to uh, take off his pants for unknown reasons. Uh, whether the good doctor yelled loud enough to scare the seagull or the bird just decided he'd make a very bad choice, uh, of lunch, but he's not sure he wants to find out. But he dropped the ball, and it was not until he was uh, some yards from the green, a full pitch shot from the pin to add, uh, add the insult. The rest of the foursome insisted the doctor play it from there. Rules are no rules. So on the next hole, the goal was back again. The doctor tee shot on a 240-yard third hole, hooked into the rough, and it looked... <sighs> they were making him play the hole that the bird was fucking him with. Seems like the bird placed... A bet on him losing. God, that story was agonizing. All right. This one's called the Coinfield Boots. <sighs> I don't trust a boots that's filled with coins. Our mean listeners will get that. There's a house in Hampton, New Hampshire that cannot cast off the spell that clings to it. Many persons over the years have insisted that they have seen and heard things in the house that cannot be explained. 
it's a weird place. It all began when General Jonathan Moulton tried to outsmart Satan himself. Old Honorable Reverend Judge Lord Commander General Moulton fought bravely in the French and Indian War, and his military career was quite lucrative, and he was well decorated. But he returned to the house in Hampton, where he was born, all the same. There, he became wealthy and important, too, but that was not enough for him. One evening, as he was going over his accounts, he cited and declared that he would sell his soul, the very devil himself, if he could be given the the wealth of the wealthiest man in the state. At once, a great fountain of sparks burst down, not up the chimney, and there, and there before him stood the devil himself. Then and there, a bargain was drawn up and agreed to. In return for the general's soul after death, the devil agreed to fill his tall boots with golden guineas every month. The general, very pleased with himself and with the arrangement, eagerly looked forward to the payments. Sure enough, on the first of the month, the boots were filled with gold, and every month from then on, the guineas arrived. Yet even these riches did not satisfy the greedy old man, and one night, before the money was due, he hung the boots in the usual place in the chimney, but cut the bottoms out of them. When the devil went to fill them up, the coins poured down out into the room, covering the floor knee-high. The general was delighted, but soon the devil realized uh, he realized exactly what was going on because he was just dumping gold into the guy's fucking boots, and he stopped filling the bottomless boots, came enraged, and took back all the gold he'd ever been given. Now, he did release the general with a bargain, but turned up later to claim his soul before he died. And that's what he's going to do. Ever since then, that house is said to have been haunted. Uh, noises were heard in empty rooms, and in one room, no lamp could be kept going no matter what, no matter how well or, it, or how well it was standing. and empty rooms and uh, I just said that but many families have lived there since General Moulton's time but nobody has stayed long for years the house stood idle and then a cobbler Daniel Day Lewis rented it scoffing at the tales that he heard but he too left a short time later because the boots that he hung from the rafters in the old house refused to stay there they jumped from the pegs as if they'd been pushed by you know fucking Satan and Next one is called The Great Black Horse of Scarborough. The ages have always been filled with mystery, small and large. Oh, yeah. Many may have been based upon coincidence, superstition, or chain of perfectly natural events, which suddenly seemed strangely related to each other. Often these supernatural events were only a combination of natural events. It's fucking deep, fanned into a grade-A mystery by folks who wanted to have a mystery in their midst, fanning them. But on the other hand, some of the world's most baffling shit has never been explained. Take the mystery of the Great Black Horse of Scarborough, England. This weird happening took place in 1165. Many residents of the province of York swore at the time they'd witnessed the strange and awful animal. During that year, on many frightening occasions, lone travelers as well as little groups or uh, varied amounts of Englishmen were startled by the thunder of hooves coming at them along the backcountry road. But they continued their journey, only to be met or overtaken by a giant black horse with no rider, uh, bridle, or saddle, galloping at breakneck speed. The creature was huge, almost as large as two ordinary horses put together, and its eyes glowed red. 
even in the bright daylight, but this was not the most frightening part about the bitch of the horse. The horse was always followed by a sudden downfall of stinging hail, and the day was shattered by forked lightning and the crash of thunder when came, which came from the small black cloud that seemed to hover above the great black beast and to follow it wherever it raced across the land. Uh, soon word of the encounters began to come in from all different parts of the province, and everyone agreed that the horse was still always headed towards the sea and the you know, fucking whatever that saying is. Everyone agreed that the house, or that the horse was always headed towards the sea, and yet it never seemed to get there. In short order, all who heard the thunder of galloping hooves on any road hastened to take shelter in the fields and to rush, rush to watch the great horse run by. So as the hectic days passed down, the beast was seen more and more often near Scarborough. When... But it was always racing towards the cliffs nearby. That's all it was doing was fucking running. Even though it was seen in different places on different days, it was always running the same way. Finally, the great black beast was seen by men at work. They came from a land down under, in the fields near the cliffs. This time, the huge animal did not hesitate, but raced straight for the edge of the cliff high above the water, and behind the animal raced the black cloud, spewing jagged flashes of lightning and sending down stinging hailstones just behind the hooves that were flying. Without a moment's hesitation, the great horse threw itself, hooves flailing in the air, out and down into the water far below. The cloud grew smaller and drifted away. The black horse was never seen again, but the imprints of the great hoof remained for at least a year in the edge of the cliff. I believe that. This next one's called Flight into Oblivion. In the vast areas of wilderness throughout the world, there are many places where a plane that crashed can be concealed. When a plane is lost over the ocean, there's a less chance of finding it. No shit. But evidence of the plane crash is spotted and the plane's fate is at least established. For example, dead bodies on the water, or oil, or debris, or a plane wing, so on and so forth. I rest my case. However, once in a while, aircraft vanish under such unusual circumstances that we wonder if perhaps some supernatural element had not stepped in to confuse the routine and confound the experts. And so it was with the Vanished Avengers. I'm not talking about Iron Man and fucking Fuckboy Supreme or any of the other one. Any of the other uh, flying people in that movie, but part of the routine training flights from Naval Air Station at Fort Lauderdale, Florida uh, is on a roughly triangular course along a relatively predetermined route. I'm not going to use this time to make an Air Force joke and talk about superiority of naval pilots, but I could have. Just want you to take note of that. Florida. Uh, there's nothing at all unusual or dangerous about these missions. Not when the naval aviators are doing them. On December 5th, 1945, five Avenger torpedo bombers, propeller-driven, took off on one such mission, a mission that was to end in tragedy and mystery. The course was to take them 160 miles over the ocean to the east, 40 miles north towards the land, and then back to the base. The pilots and navigators had flown the route many times before, and this time it was different. It wasn't like the times before. All the planes had the best radio and navigational equipment. Each one had self-inflating life raft, lap rafts, 
and each man wore a life jacket. The planes left after 2 p.m. and they were due back in two hours. Uh, at around 3.45, when they would normally be about ready to ask for landing instructions, they were heard on the radio uh, having a conversation, and the base station was advised. The flight leader was heard to say, Can't be sure where we are, can't see land, I'm not sure of our position. After he had consulted with all five navigators, could all five navigators be lost at the same time? This wasn't the Air Force, this was the Navy. Impossible, under any normal conditions, for a naval pilot and five navigators to be lost. Shortly thereafter, the flight leader turned the command over to another pilot. Uh, and 25 minutes later, the last message came from the planes, which was still not certain where we are, but we believe that we're 225 miles northeast of the base. It looks like we are... And then there was nothing. No radios were heard, nor were there any distress signals, and a vast search was started immediately. One of the planes that took off at once was a giant Martin Mariner flying boat equipped to land on rough seas as a rescue operation type of deal. It was loaded with survival and rescue equipment of all kinds, and base radio advised the Avengers and the Mariner were on... They, he advised the Avengers that the Mariner was on its way to lead them home. Then he called the big flying boat to find out its position and if the men had sighted anything. The Mariner didn't answer the call. She too vanished in the same general area without a trace. And the greatest aircraft search in history began starting then. Nearly 250 planes, an escort carrier, many surface ships, and a dozen land search parties scoured the coast for traces of any of the six planes. But the five torpedo planes and the giant flying boat were never spotted. And there was not a scrap of wreckage, a floating body, a tire, a book, paper, distress call, rumor, nothing. All poof, bitch be gone, suddenly, silently and mysteriously. The report of the Naval Board of Inquiry concluded with, We are not able to make even a good guess as to what happened. Hmm? Can you? Yes, I can, actually. Uh, federal budget is an interesting thing. Uh, it's my understanding that with most federal departments, which I believe the Department of Defense is, which is in charge of the Navy, um, if you don't use your budget, you lose your budget. So, like, you have to use the same amount of budget money that you used last year or else you're going to get a cut. That's when hour cuts happen or, like, downsizing for the military happens. I think. I think. And, um, okay, so check this out. It was after the war. They were used to spending a shitload of money building new fleets. They were, uh, bored. So they took their manifest for all of the base vehicles, correct? Yeah, I got it all in front of them. They're looking, looking at the outdated planes. And then they took their eraser. Well, I suppose it was the Navy. They didn't have erasers. But they take their blotting stick. And they uh, strike the planes from the record. Or they add planes to the record that were never there so they can be reimbursed for them when they crash. Say there were zero planes that fit the description of the bombers. They cross off that zero. Or they just add another O to it, make it an eight. So now they can bill the government to uh, replace the five planes, the albatrosses, or the albatrosses? Mariners, my mistake. The mariners that they lost. And they could put down the arm for that. More budget expenditures, new planes. I think that makes the most sense out of anything. Or, uh, you know, here's another sound theory. Someone just made that shit up. It's a fucking lie. I've never seen pilots' names associated with those wrecks. Um... You'd think that would be well-known. It was recent enough. Like, you know the names of guys that died in Pearl Harbor. You don't know the names of five people that died over the fucking Florida, Florida coast? 
I'm sure somebody has put names listed on, on the internet, but I'd like to see the uh, actual naval inquiry paperwork, if that's such a thing. Anyway, this one's called New England's Darkest Day. That's, uh, the last 20 years has taken on a very different context. All of us know dark days, but one of the most unusual dark days happened back in the spring of 1780. Mm, VH1, I love the 1780s. On May 19th, to be exact. What is it with that? It's another one of those dates, yo. Talking about those synchronicity dates. You can find reference to it in many New England town histories, uh, especially the ones that go back that far, like Honest Uncle John's Shitter, uh, Shitter Doodles and Good Reads, and in old books on unusual physical happenings. Dishonest Uncle John's Weird Shit uh, and Ink. <laughs> Weird Shit Incorporated. It's never been completely explained, although there was probably some sort of scientific and sensible explanation for it. Yet, has, yet we have not had one present itself yet. The facts alone, however, are indeed intriguing according to the book. You can imagine the terror of the citizens that had no radios or other means of contacting the outside world to find out how far the darkness had spread. On May 19th, it dawned as bright and clear as usual, except there appeared to be a haze in the southwest. Sounds like a Bruce Springsteen song. One town, history reports, uh, said that it was raining. This haze grew darker, and soon the whole sky was covered with a thick cloud, which uh, had been... With, it was, which was traveling northeast rapidly, and it reached the Canadian border, or Snow Mexico to some of you, by mid-morning. Meanwhile, the eastern part of New York and Maine, New Hampshire, Rhode Island, Massachusetts, and Connecticut were becoming darker and darker. By one o'clock, some sections were so dark the white paper held in a few inches in front of your face could not be seen. Uh, I think their definition of white paper from back then varies quite a bit, and it was as dark as the starless night, so not very. Apprehension soon turned into panic and hysteria, and schools were dismissed, and lanterns and candles were lit in the home and put along the streets. That sounds cute. One New Hampshire town, History, reports that chickens and birds went to roost and that everything appeared as though it were filtered through some kind of an Egyptian darkness, whatever that fucking means. I think that might just be a racial slur of the day, but it did say that. Many people gathered in churches to pray and await what they assumed was Judgment Day or the Rapture or Armageddon or whatever. Or nothing. However, in one city, at least, business went on as usual. And thanks to a rugged individual in Hartford, Connecticut, the state legislature was in session. By noon, the members were unable even to see each other. The meeting threatened to break up uh, completely in a panic, but one of the members arose and addressed the speaker, saying, Mr. Speaker, this is either the day of judgment or it's not, and if it's not, there's no need for adjourning. If it is, I desire to be found doing my duty. I move that candles be brought inside and that we proceed to business. And so, just like that, the session continued, with only a few leaving to uh, limp to their house, hiding from fear and trembling cold. That night, the darkness continued, and it was noted that they... Noted that by the light of the lanterns, everything seemed to have been faint greenish hues, and a full moon was due to rise at nine, but it did not show until after one in the morning, when it appeared high in the sky and blood red, and shortly afterwards, stars began to appear again, and the following morning, the sun was as bright as ever, 14 hours of the strangest darkness ever, 
to panic staunch New Englanders. Uh, have you guys ever seen like the 23 hours of darkness, 24 hours of darkness, or 23 hours of light shit? Talk about fucking your head. I was in Alaska. I know I've mentioned this before, but I was in Alaska for the 23 hours of daylight. And that was something spectacular in a weird way, but very cool. It fucks with your head. Some strange people that are a result of that, that fuckery. I'm going to step away from the uh, old-timey book, Short and Shivery, and I'm going to go back... Er, I'm sorry. I'm going to step away from, strangely enough, and step into Short and Shivery. Some more modern stories, also terrifying shit from my youth. Uh, and it's going to be a little bit more cultured, if you will. This one's called The Goblin Spider. It's a Japanese legend. There was once a famous samurai named Raiko who was sent by the Emperor of Japan to rid the country of a terrible goblin spider plaguing the countryside near the city of Kyoto. This famous warrior went searching for the monster with his companion, Tusuna. And when they reached the plain of Rendai, which was supposedly haunted, the two men suddenly saw a skull floating in the air in front of them. Have you come to destroy the spider? The skull asked. We have, answered Raiko. The monster killed me many years ago, said the skull. I've waited a long time to see this bitch punished. I'll show you where you can find it. And before they could question the ghostly friend, the skull flew away in front of him as though it was driven by an unseen wind. And when, when have you ever been able to see the wind? The two knights thought they were samurai. The two samurai followed as fast as they could, but when they had almost caught up to their strange guide, it seemed to dis disappear. So looking around them, two men discovered nearby the ruins of a beautiful palace. Entering the littered courtyard through a crumbling archway, they saw a strange old woman sitting on a broken pillar across from them. She was dressed in all white, lank white hair, and her face was a mass of wrinkles, delicate as a spider's web. When she raised her heavy eyelids, her eyes glittered like an insect, black and cold. And they both looked at Raiko and Suna. Warriors, you are not welcome here, she said to them. I'm 290 years old, and for all my life I've served the demon who haunts this place. Be warned. If you linger here, the monster will slay you, as he's slain countless other tougher men. Most braver than you. We won't be frightened away, said Suna, and be gone, hag, commanded Raiko, and tell the creature you serve that we were here by the will of the emperor, who commands us to rid the kingdom of the goblin spider. And at this, the old woman broke into a cackling laugh. I will send some friends to entertain you while I tell my mistress you have come to see her. With that, the hag melted into a pale mist and vanished through the ass crack in the courtyard and in the flagging. And at the same time, dark storm clouds began to gather above the shattered palace with flashes of lightning uh, light, lighting the ruins all around them. A short time later, rain began to patter down on the flagstones of the court. Rob hissed, grabbing his buddy's shoulder and said, listen. Now, Suna could hear it also, and that was ghostly footsteps all around him. Suddenly, a great company of demons poured out into the rain, and some were huge with horns, say they were horny, three toes, three fingers, three eyes. Some looked like animals, but had slain countless other men. Some, oops, they looked like animals, but they walked like men, with faces that were a horrifying mix of beast and human. One had eyes and hands, kept its palms up so we could see, and another was a serpent with a woman's head, its long hair flying and its tongue flickering to the taste of the rain. Uh, small creatures like frogs and monkeys with a... No. It's terrifying. 
Both samurai drew their swords, and in an instant the gruesome horde bore down upon them, but their flashing swords kept the monsters at bay for some reason. So on and on they fought, while more monsters came from the shadows to join those already battling the two night samurais. Toward the morning, the rain slackened and the thunder died away somewhat, but still the demons kept up the attack. Then, over the sound of battle and dying storm, Raiko heard a distant cock crowing. A shudder ran through the monstrous company surrounding them, and when the cock crowed a second time, the hideous creatures began retreating to the shadows of the ruins, hissing and snarling and screeching. The goblin army fled the approaching dawn. Ow. When they were alone in the vast courtyard, Raiko and Zuna hugged each other and complimented the other on his bravery. They heard a single pair of footsteps climbing, climbing an unseen staircase and in a doorway on the far side of the courtyard. A beautiful pale woman dressed in white appeared. She looked as slender and graceful as a willow. Curving in the breeze, silently, she beckoned uh, for the two men to come nearer. Both uh, knew that when they were close to her, she was suddenly not what they expected. She was wrapped in a fierce white light and brighter than the sun, which blinded the both of them. Suna gave a cry, dropped to the ground, and pressed his hands to his eyes. Then he rolled on his side. Raiko turned his head aside and raised his left arm to shield his eyes, and with his right arm drew his sword. The dazzling light grew fainter. Looking into it from an angle, Raiko saw that the beautiful woman had become a ghastly thing. A thing with tiny tits and a head two feet long that floated at the end of a reed-like skinny-ass neck. Her arms were white as snow, and long and thin as ropes that were snaking out toward the half-blinded warrior. Just as the awful creature touched him, Raiko shouted and struck at her with his sword. She turned into threads of silk that just disappeared down between the stones of the courtyard. Just as the old hag had vanished earlier, Raiko found out he was covered with cobwebs as thick as wire. He pulled the sticky strands off, and Suna, who had also recovered from the blinding, joined his friend. Together they discovered that Raiko's sword was smeared with not red, but white blood. The sun had returned now, and the last of the rainwater was seeping away through the cracks between the flagstones. After watching this for a while, Raiko clashed his sword on the stone several times and then said, There's a vast hollow space below us, and that's where the hag and the old creature have fled. Surely, that's where the goblin spider has its den. There must be a way down there, through the building, suggested Suma. To be sure, said Raiko. But the monster must fear the sunlight, or else it would come after us. Uh, not sent others to warn us away. We would be smart to bring the sun with us around here from now on. How? asked Suna. Like this, said Raiko, and he sank to the point of his sword between two flagstones and pried one loose, and the ancient mortar crumbled easily. Stone after stone came free, and it was tossed into the far corner of the courtyard as a torch. Suddenly from the shadowy depths below, a voice cried, Stop. The sunlight burns me. Go away. I grant you your lives. But the two men only worked harder. God damn, if only I had that experience uh, with some of the jobs I've worked. When they uh, are dismissed, they just work harder, get it done better, more efficiently. If only. Revealing a vast room under the courtyard and peering into the spot where the shadow was the deepest, Raiko saw a monster with many legs covered with long, silky white hair. Had an enormous head, split with terrible jaws, and huge black eyes that glittered darkly as it watched the two men. I am sick and in pain, groaned the creature. I will make you pay dearly for the suffering you have caused me. 
It scuttled around the pool of sunlight that Raiko and Suna had created, prying away the chamber roof stone by stone. And then Raiko dropped to the floor and battled the monster, keeping, always, straight in the light. The creature charged and retreated and charged again and retreated and charged again and retreated. But he was afraid of the sunlight that glinted off of Raiko's armor and helmet and lay like a band of fire on his blade. Still, the battle raged for more than an hour before Raiko dispatched the monster. The blow of his sword had sent the creature's head rolling across the den. It came to rest beside a pile of human bones and skulls that showed how many unfortunate subjects of the Emperor had fallen victim to that monster. The only reason he gives a shit is because they're fucking taxpayers. Carrying the monster's head on a pole between them, Raiko and Suna returned to the Emperor's court, where they were highly praised and richly rewarded for their courage. You killed the spider, richly reward this. This next one is uh, from the land of cheese and honey itself, and that is France, and this one's called the Halloween Pony. <laughs> Grandmother put another log on the fire, and she fixed me up some biscuits and some beans. And outside the little house, which was not far from the sea, the wind was howling so fiercely that it set the windows a-rattling. Listen to that, said the old woman. There's a storm brewing for sure. She, she could hear the storm. She stirred the coals in the fireplace with a heavy poker until the new log caught and began to blaze. Satisfied, she turned to her three grandsons who were sitting on the floor, gazing into the flames. Besides, she added, this is Halloween. Witches are abroad tonight. And the goblins, who are their servants, and they're wandering in all sorts of disguises looking for children to eat. But Tom, the eldest boy, said, I won't stay here frightened of a little wind and old stories. I promised Colette I'd call on her tonight. She swore she wouldn't get a wink of sleep if I didn't visit her before the moon had gone down. Colette's a werewolf, Holmes. You're fucked. I have to go and catch lobsters and crabs. So Lewis is going to try and catch crabs. Not all the witches and goblins in the world are bad. I'm going to go catch some crabs. All three brothers announced they were going out for one reason or another and ignored the warnings of their good old grandma. Only the youngest hesitated for a minute when she said to him, You stay with me, little dick. Richard, I'll tell you stories of a better time in a place that we once knew. But he wanted to pick blackberries by the moonlight, and so he ran off after his brothers, and he caught up with them on the rise beneath the old oak tree. Grandmother talks about wind and storm, but I've never seen the weather finer or the sky clearer, said Lewis. I'll bring home plenty of crabs tonight, he said. See how big the moon is, said Tom. Perhaps I can coax Colette to go for a walk with me. And then Richard, who was staring, or was starting to walk towards the blackberry patch, suddenly cried, Look! And he pointed to a little black pony standing quietly at the foot of the hill. Oh, ho, said Lewis. That's old Frederick's pony. It must have escaped from its stable. And it's gone uh, down here to drink at the horse pond. Now, pretty pony, said Tom, going up and patting the creature with his hand. You mustn't run away. I'll lead you to the pond myself. With these words, he jumped on the pony's back. Take me too, called Lewis, and his brother helped him up. Don't leave me behind, cried Richard, and the brothers helped him out. Soon, all three were astride the little black pony, which waited patiently until they got themselves settled. Tom clung to the pony's neck. Lewis held on to Tom, and Richard held Lewis's shirt. We got ourselves a riding bitch three-way. Now get up, urged Tom, and the little pony headed directly for the horse pond. 
On their way, each brother met a friend and invited him to mount the pony. Soon, there were six boys holding on to one another and laughing. What the fuck? The pony didn't seem to mind the extra weight, but pranced merrily along under the brilliant moon. The faster it trotted, the more the boys had fun. They dug their heels into the pony sides and called out, Gallop, little horse, you've got six of the bravest riders in the world on your back. Soon, they were racing along through the grassy fields near the seashore, and the wind rose, sending clouds scudding across the face of the moon and whipping the pony's long black mane back across the eye of the boys in the front. Very close now, they could hear the waves pounding against the rocky shores. I ho silver, wee! The pony did not mind the noise. Instead of going to the horse pond, he circled around and cantered rapidly towards the sea. Lewis, the middle brother, began to regret his wish to catch crabs, and Richard Dick found that he was no longer interested in blackberries. Both held on to their seats on the pony, which was galloping at breakneck speeds towards the beach. The eldest, Tom, seized the madly charging pony by the mane and tried to make him turn around, but he tugged and pulled in vain for the pony galloped fast as the howling wind straight on toward the sea, pausing only when the first wave splashed over its hoods. Six riders uh, thought to slip off the pony's back while it lingered at the water's edge, but they found that they were stuck at the creature's back. Then, rearing up a little bit, the little black pony neighed loudly and ran back and forth through the sea foam gleefully and suddenly charged into the billowing waves while its riders cried out in terror. The pony is bewitched, wailed Tom. We should have listened to grandmother's warnings. The pony advanced farther and farther into the sea. The waves rose higher and higher until they covered the children's head and the pony vanished beneath the swells. Some say the kids were drowned. Some say the goblin pony carried them to a strange city of coral and pearl at the bottom of the sea. But... They were never seen again, that's for goddamn sure. Okay, well, we have finally finished going through Short and Shivery. Now let's see, let's jump books here again, shall we? Oh, just to get a little bit of everything, all-encompassing. Check this out. So, I have another book, Terrifying Tales. Short stories, smaller than my dick. Introduction. This book contains a collection of scary stories that are meant to give you a fright. We love to scare our, our readers. However, please remember that all the stories in this book are the work of the author's imagination. None of the scary creatures in these tales are real. Bigfoot doesn't exist. There's nothing hiding in your closet. Turn off the light and climb under the blankets. You can sleep easy, dear readers. You are safe. Introduction Part 2 I want you to know that all the scary stories in this book are true. There are monsters in your closet waiting for you to close your eyes. There are nightmares in the woods walking the halls of your school. The boogeyman is fucking real. Don't listen to what David said on the previous page. He's trying to trick you. He wants you to feel safe. He wants you to let your guard down. Don't fall for it. That's how they get you. Sometimes the noise you hear at night, they're not just your imagination. Sweet dreams, fuckers. Sean. This story's titled, Old Baldy. Derek's nickel bounced off the top of Old Baldy's head with a dull clunk. His family probably had more money than the rest of the miserable town combined. Using nickels instead of pennies like the rest of us was his way of making sure that we didn't forget it. Nailed it, he said. Luck, I said. Whatever, let's see you do it. Got any pennies left? I'm not sure if he emphasized pennies or if I just imagined it. Uh, that's enough for today, I said. I was out of pennies, but I didn't want that jerk to know it. So we got on our bicycles and started back towards town. Baldy's Well was just on the edge of town in an overgrown park that the city could no longer keep up. Still got the occasional picnicker, but it mostly attracted bored kids like us who came to flip pennies or nickels into a well. The well was made of old stones covered in moss and had rotted remains of whatever hooker was thrown down there in the 19th century or so. Uh, 
but also the rotted remains of wooden posts on top that probably once lowered a bucket or hooker into the water. Now it served as a part wishing well, part ghost story, and every few years some overprotective parent would insist the city fill it in. The town would compromise with some sort of a cover, and kids would probably um, uncover it within a week. Now we could see the water about 20 feet down, but nobody knew if it went deeper or what was at the bottom. Since the depth never seemed to change, I kind of thought it didn't go any deeper. You could see old Baldy's head down below. It was I was nine, so I wasn't stupid. The town kids told ghost stories, ghost stories about old Baldy and how he'd sometimes come out the well and grab an unsuspecting child, but it was really just a shiny white rock with a bit of moss that looked like hair. Uh, Jimmy told me just two years ago a kid from Jasper got grabbed by old Baldy, Eric said, and then I said, your brother's full of shit. We'd have heard if that had happened. Not if the kid was from Jasper, Derek said, his cheeks flushing as red as his ginger soulless hair. It might not have been in our news. Maybe, I said. Of course, old Baldy isn't real anyway, so that probably means it didn't happen at all. That rock might not be old Baldy, but it doesn't mean he's not real. Maybe he just lives down deeper. It wasn't the first time we had this debate. Derek liked to freak me out. I hated when we had our ghost stories around the fire with our friends because they knew they could scare me. I couldn't seem to stop from getting scared no matter how hard I tried. Bullshit, I said, and as I've gotten older, I started to use more adult language, which made me feel cool. Derek skidded his bike to a stop. If you know so much, why don't we come back tonight and flip pennies? Tonight? After dark, Derek said as he looked straight in my eyes, unless you're too much of a pussy. My mom will never let me ride out there after dark. Neither will yours, but lucky for you. Um, I saved you from looking stupid. You're just scared, Derek said. You can tell your mom you're going to my place, and I'll tell my mom I'm going to yours. You know they won't check. He was right. We'd done it before. We did sleepovers all the time, and the parents never called the check. I couldn't think of a good excuse. Fine, I said. I'll meet in front of my place at 8.30. I told my parents I was going to go to Derek's to play video games later, and I hoped my mom would say no. I even tried to give her an out by bringing up the fact that we were going to visit my aunt the next day, but it was summer, and she didn't mind. I found Derek waiting for me in his, at the front of his house at the agreed-upon time. And the ride to Baldy's well was a silent one. I was lost in thought, and I guess Derek probably was too. Normally, the park felt a bit wild, overgrown, but after dark, it seemed to take on a sinister air. I was disappointed to not find any high schoolers there making out. It, I don't know why you'd be disappointed about that. I'm not disappointed. What the fuck? Derek acted braver and peered over the edge. The moonlight glistened off the top of old Baldy's chrome dome, and he flipped a nickel and hit the crown dead on. There, he said. I woke him up. Let's see what happens if you try. Sweat collected on my upper lip, and I knew nothing would happen, but I couldn't help it. I grabbed the penny from my pockets and balanced the coin on my thumbnail. With a flip, I went up and falling, and I peered over to see where it landed. Ugh. I screamed, and I nearly pissed my pants when I... When Derek shouted and fake pushed me like I was going in. You butthole, I yelled as I stumbled a few yards back from the well. I was out of breath and trying hard not to cry and shake. Derek doubled over in fits of giggles. At the moment, I wanted nothing more than to punch him right in his scrotum. You should have seen your stupid ass face, he said. It was goddamn funny. It was behind him, so he couldn't see it, and my mouth was open, but I couldn't make any sound come out. 
a shiny white dome, the top of it covered in something damp, stringy, and brown crept off the edge of the well. Two black holes that should have held the eyes, but instead were full of railing worms, looked at me and then turned their slimy gaze towards Derek. He screamed as bony fingers grabbed his wrist and yanked him over the edge of the well. I heard a splash, the water sounding deeper than I ever thought we'd have to hear. I couldn't, I couldn't breathe. I yelled Derek's name, I yelled for my mom, mostly I just made sounds of pure terror. I knew I had to help, I wanted to go get out of there as soon as I could. But I forced myself to run back to the side of the well. I peeked over the inside and looked down into the darkness, and the pale, ghostly light of the full moon shone on the bottom of the well. The water was perfectly still, broken only by the top of Old Baldy's head and a smaller one next to it. Bits of bright orange hair on top, just visible in the moonlight. Zombie rocks? Alright, kids, and on that note, I am going to wrap up this episode because uh, I'm going to have more quality content coming at you very soon Uh, not to say that this was quality content but I will have I have quality content prepared for more episode arcs I've gotten a lot of requests for historical stuff which I am very grateful for because I fucking I like true crime but it definitely makes me anxious and paranoid every time I leave my apartment Um, looking over my shoulder wondering about my dog that sort of shit So I tend to most of the time prefer some of the uh, historical stuff. But if you guys have requests, as always, I am still honoring my open door policy. Those of you that have reached out, I appreciate it. Um, I appreciate all of you that have reviewed the uh, podcast on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever else you can review it and listen to it. It's on uh, websites I don't even fucking know about. I stumbled upon it when I've searched my, uh, I made the mistake of searching my moniker and podcast name, which, uh, there's some fucking rude people on the internet, man. I'm not a, I have an open door policy. You can say the rude shit just straight to me. I'd rather hear it like that. Um, but if you, if it makes you happy to, you know, one star rate and talk shit, then just do that. That's cool too. You're a pussy, but you can do whatever you want. So, let's see. So, since I took an entire week or two off from posting new content, and I still got consistent listens, which uh, surprises the fuck out of me, I am genuinely grateful to you guys for keeping it up and keeping it rolling. I thought I would fade into nothingness and uh, be forgotten about while I was on vacation. So, thank you for reassuring me and stroking the ego. That's what I've been talking about this whole time, my ego being stroked. So, let's see. Who were the most... What do I call them? Loyal cities? Biggest fans? Came from where? I don't know. Let's see. All right. Well, man, I need to give you guys like a fruit basket in this city. That is Mount Joy, Pennsylvania coming in top 10 at number one. Closely followed. And I do mean closely. By Portland, Oregon. Which was, oof, man, this is a, this is a goddamn tight race. These are all like within a percentage. So Mountjoy, Pennsylvania, Portland, Oregon, Glasgow, Scotland, fuck yeah, Ogden, Utah, Orlando, Florida, Scottsdale, Arizona, London, Los Angeles, Philadelphia, and Belfast, Northern Ireland, and uh, let's see, tied with Minneapolis, Minnesota. Thank you all very much. Genuinely appreciate you guys. Um, 
please continue to tune back in. I promise it's going to just keep getting better from uh, whenever the last time I said that was. Also, I have a Patreon now, a recently established Patreon and a proper email address. So if you go to anthologyofhorror.com, that is anthologyofhorror.com, which I'm doing right now. Make sure that it works. Yes, sure does. Scary Stories from America and World History. It will take you to the podcast's online player, um, where you can see a very convenient list of all the podcasts that I've put out in the last few months. Which, uh, is a surprising amount. Also, if there's a link in the top right corner that will take you to the Anthology of Horror Patreon. Which, coincidentally, I thought, uh, I thought Patreon was just, like, a way to discreetly pay your hooker, but... Apparently, it's a discreet way to pay your podcast guy, too. So, if you feel that I deserve a kickback for um, what you've been listening to, I don't expect it, but I would appreciate it, just because I'd prefer to not do my job for much longer. I'd prefer to focus more on this. I think I'd really enjoy it. But, if you guys donate, that would be much appreciated. If not, I still appreciate you. Just please continue to spread the word so that this continues to grow, so that I can just have that little glimmer of hope every day at work. <laughs> I know you fuckers know what I'm talking about. I know you know exactly what I'm talking about. I had something else that I wanted to tell you. What was it? Oh yeah, you can email me at springheeledjack at anthologyofhorror.com That's right. Springheeledjack at anthologyofhorror.com Because I have my own email server. Because I'm a grown-up. Fully grown-up in some ways but uh, I missed rambling at you guys you guys are a very fucking great audience I was a I love reading emails from you guys man you guys are all great like very very like minded people and I thoroughly appreciate that but from all different walks of life I just like that it takes brutal murders and fucking allegations of haunting to bring us all together in in a community um, not to say that my podcast is a community, just to reference true crime as a community on a whole. I'm not, not narcissistic enough to believe that, but it's pretty cool. I really like uh, hearing your guys' stories, picking your picking your brains on stuff, uh, listening to your opinions. I value constructive criticism. If you guys uh, genuinely believe that I could do something to improve the podcast experience for everybody, I would be more than happy to do it, and you can always tell me what needs to be done or what needs to be fixed and I will do my best if it's not a stupid fucking idea to fix it so thank you for tuning back into another episode of Anthology of Horror I am your host and narrator Springhill Jack and thank you very much for listening to Ghost Stories Shorter Than My Dick stay spooky <laughs>